All right, uh, turn your Bible. If you need one, there's one underneath, but I know everybody has a phone, and you all have electronic devices, and you probably can just speak, tell Alexa to go to Esther 7, man. Okay, so I read this. I needed, when I read it, I laughed. I needed to laugh. It was so good. Uh, it's found on a wall in a mess hall, in a Marine Corps uh, mess hall on a base. And it says this, this food must be good. 10,000 flies can't be wrong, right? <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Those of you that served uh, probably can relate very well to that. I had flashbacks when I was overseas and we couldn't find food. I was in uh, a place called Almaton, Kazakhstan, and uh, we could literally could not find food. We couldn't find the markets. You go to the places where they just sold bread. And so I was eating bread for two weeks. All I could eat was bread. So, I mean, I was just, oh, yeah, I, was, I lost 20 pounds in like seven days. But anyhow, I went, I found my favorite place was this place that made kasha. And you know, you know you're hungry when you're eating kasha for every meal and flies are everywhere and you don't care. That's what that reminded me of. Okay, so there's a Reuters Reuters news service reported that a German man returned home from his trips to Senegal. Have you heard about this? It's incredible. He had to wait for his luggage. And, you know, all of us have had to wait for luggage. But you're asking, well, what's the big deal? Why would this be reported? How long did he have to wait for his luggage? (laughs) 24 years he had to wait for his luggage. The Dusseldorf police said, we found this case next to a police station and tracked it down to its owner, who's now 61. So when they got to the owner and they take the suitcase to his house, he laughs out loud and he says, listen, I don't want my disco clothes back. But his wife is there and she's like, oh, yes, we do. And then you got to, it was interesting. Everybody was wondering in the article, like, why was the wife so insistent on getting that suitcase back? This police spokeswoman said she was curious to see what was in there. So curiosity got her, right? What if, what if, I'm just saying, what if you and I could see into the human heart from birth to death? Would you be curious to see what's in there? I mean, what if we could see into relationships, a child and a parent, husband and wife, boyfriend or girlfriend, a friendship, communities, right, at work, would you be interested to see what's in there? I mean, what if we could see into the culture of chaos today, like we could actually see into the interpretations of reality that are going on, the views and the beliefs that people are spinning and thinking about right now, everybody's dreams and hopes and needs and nightmares, everybody's demons and angels, would you be interested in seeing what's in there? What if you right now could see into your own heart? Would you be interested in seeing what's in there? Esther Chapter 7 says, I'm going to tell you and show you what's in there. I'm going to show you what's in the human heart since Adam and Eve from death 
from birth to death. I'm going to show you what's in human relationships. I'm going to show you what's in the chaos of culture. I'm going to show you, Esther 7 says, your own heart. So if you want to leave, you can leave now. I will pray long enough just for you to get inconspicuously out of this room. Because this is an interesting, I, I want to emphasize that the way that most of the times that we preach here, certainly the way we're preaching through Esther, we're just going through Esther. So this is sometimes when you get to more like, you know, naughty, uh, more personal texts, it's just the next text. So don't hold it against me. Let's pray together. Uh, actually, let's stand. We'll read the text and then we'll pray after the text. It's going to be Esther chapter 7. I'm going to pick up at the end of verse 16, because it just transitions into 7 a little better, okay? So while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So now they're at the feast. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish, Queen Esther? It's, I've asked you this three times. It doesn't say that, but that's what I would be saying. It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even up to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, King, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, no, she's not saying husband at this point, let my wife be granted, let my life be granted for me, for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I am my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated, and if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. I would have stayed silent, for our affliction would not have compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Now the king was returning from the palace. This is more like a movie scene. The king's returning from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. He knows what he's going to do. He's made up his mind, right? As Haman, he's coming in as Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he... The content is, I'm going to read you literally what it says. Will he even sexually assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Most think that's a euphemism for they killed him right there. They just took him out. Because remember, you can either be killed on a pike, on a stick, or hung on it to be killed. One or the other. Who knows? Uh, then... Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, right, there are gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, standing at Haman's house, 75 feet high, two telephone poles high. Everyone in the whole kingdom is looking at it in the city. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you shine on the page. We thank you that your word is how you work, that your word has divine energies in it. And so, Lord, unleash your divine energies upon us, divine life, divine power. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Okay, so when I read this and I continue to read this, it's so hard not to be hard on Haman, is it not? It's so hard not to be hard on Haman. So what we're going to do is I'm just going to say it. I'm going to rip the Band-Aid off really, really quickly. We're going to say it, and then we're going to experience it. We're going to see it. We're going to feel it, okay? So I'm going to give you the proposition. Just say it. Get it over with. Here it is. What's in there? What's in the suitcase? What's in the human heart from birth to death? What's in relationships? What's in the chaos in our culture? What's in your heart? What's in my heart? Answer, Haman. Haman is there. Haman is there. So our plan is to see Haman in there, in the human heart, in relationships, in the cultural chaos, in your heart and my heart, and then see something else. So it's very, very simple. We're going to see Haman in there. We're going to feel it. We're going to experience it. And I want to say it now because most folks don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But here's what I want to say to you right now. If we are able to hang in there, fasten your seatbelt so you don't bolt, and able to look at what's happening in this text and see the Haman in you and the relationships and the culture, what will actually happen is hope, healing, and happiness. So just the opposite of what we think, right? We think when we confess things, it's like, oh, my word. It's like I'm dying. I'm like, no, it's actually life-giving. So that's what we're going to do. Then we're going to see something else, and then we'll be done. Okay, so we're introduced to Haman. Do you remember when we met Haman? We met him back in chapter 3. Do you remember that? Remember he was promoted to the second most powerful man in the world, (laughs) The second most. Now remember, this kingdom of Xerxes is one of the greatest empires in the history of human history. So this is no small thing. This is up with Alexander the Great, right? This is up with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. I mean, these are who, remember, he fought the 300 at the Battle of Thermopylae. The Greeks eventually overthrow him. But before then, he had everything. He was one of the greatest kingdoms ever, right? So Haman is the second most powerful man in the world. But notice, it's not enough for him. Verse 5 in chapter 3, when Haman saw Mordecai, didn't bow down to him, didn't pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. He was so filled with fury, though, that he couldn't go up to him and, like, you know, take him on on the spot. He was so filled with fury. His fury was so big. His furnace in his heart was so fiery. He not only needed to consume Mordecai, but Mordecai's whole race to satisfy what was going on in his heart. And this is what he said. He found out who they were, and he determined then to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So that would mean the Jews back in Jerusalem too. So we're talking everybody is going to get taken out. So what's happening here? What do we, what's happening the very first scene that we meet Mordecai? I mean, uh, Haman. What's happening? You know what's happening? What are we seeing in there? Pride's happening. Pride is happening. In Esther chapter 5, the queen throws this huge party. Remember, this is the empire of the empires, right? This is the powerhouse of the world, the superpower. She throws a party. If a queen throws a party, it's a big deal. She only has two guests. One is the king, of course, and then the other is 
Haman. Can you imagine? What honor. What honor. What, what recognition. What power. So, of course, after the party, we read this in 5.9. And Haman went out that day from the party, joyful and glad of heart. <laughs> What's happening? Pride is happening. Being more for Haman makes him alive. Being recognized for Haman makes him live. Glad of heart. Joyful. But notice Haman's happy heart doesn't last long. I mean, it doesn't even last. What is it, 20 seconds? 20 seconds from he's in this party, he's feeling, he walks out of the party, goes through the I don't know, that massive, massive room of 36 pillars that are almost 75 feet tall, huge, walks through there, goes out into the outer portions, the pavilion, where all the lions are lined up, another massive place, and then he sees Mordecai, and the text says, but when he saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. What's happening? Pride is happening. Haman's heart just got emptied. Haman's heart just became formless and void. Haman's heart just filled with nothingness. You know what the you know what the technical theological term for that is? It's called condemnation. Condemnation is what happens when you become a nothing, a non-person, a nobody a loser, you're rejected, you're not approved, you're not acceptable, you're not loved. Haman felt all of that. Someone was stealing his heart. Someone was emptying his soul. Someone was filling him with doom and nothingness and the condemnation of his very being. His self was collapsing. To say this was traumatic would be an understatement. Notice that the text literally, it's, it reads like a little kid that just got hurt at the playground and is running home to his mom. He runs home to his wife, gathers the friends, because now he's so desperate He's so in need to find himself. He's so in need of a self that this is what the text says. He gathers his wife and his friends. Haman recounts to them the splendor of his riches. He's more, he has more wealth than the king. The number of his sons. He has more sons than the king. All the promotions with which the king has honored him. And how he has advanced above, advanced, the king has advanced him above other officials. All the officials and servants of the king and then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king, come with the king to a feast she prepared. And tomorrow I'm also invited to come to another feast with the two of them only. What's happening? Pride is happening. Haman needs to be more to feel alive. Haman needs to be recognized to feel alive. And it almost works. It almost saves his soul. 
It almost fills him up. It almost makes him a somebody. It almost gives him an intact self. It almost does it. But then we read, this is still the same conversation with his wife and with his friends. He just said all those incredible things, right? He needed to find himself. He needed a self. He needed, he needed meaning in his life. And then he says, yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. What's happening? Pride is happening. Uh, pride can't give him a self. Pride can't justify his existence. Pride can't give him a solidness of hope in his innermost being so that he can say, I'm alive. I have worth. I matter. Theologian Virgil Thompson said, from Genesis to Revelation, the biblical story tells of the human desire to be as gods. It's a tempting aspiration, which humans find irresistible. The aspiration, however, has not worked out so well. There's a book I'm reading. I'm reading, I'm having to read iBooks. I think I'm going to start doing uh, books on tape or something like that. I don't know if theological books are put on tape, so I'll figure it out. But... Um, I'm reading one called Justification is for Preaching, and this is what the book says. The, it's a collection of authors. It says, the heart of the human is curved in on itself. So the heart of the human is curved in on itself. That's just famous lines from Luther. Luther's the one that said that. Uh, the deeper question, though, is this. Why do we humans exploit and oppress others? That's not a relevant question today. Along with all the rest of creation in the service of self. So why are we oppressing and exploiting people, culture, creation for the sake of self? Answer, we're stuck in a cul-de-sac of self. We can't get out of self. It goes that we are bound, this text says, to justify ourselves over against our neighbor and over against God. In other words, people, culture, all aspects of creation are just a project of self-justification. We use them. That's fascinating. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, of course, religious people think that. Church people say that. Okay, well, let's go to a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, famous French philosopher. He was not a Christian, did not regard the Bible. All he did was observe human people. He just looked at human conditions. He looked at human cultures, and he looked at how people work, and he looked at how things go. This is what he said. Human beings are what they make of themselves. No more, no less. He says, when human freedom is received, so he's saying, everybody wants to be free, but here's the point. Your freedom is that you have the freedom to only make something of yourself. And he says that this supposed freedom that everybody's under to make something of themselves makes life unbearable, end quote. So what is in there? What is in the human heart from Adam and Eve on down the line from birth to death? What's in human relationships, child, parent, husband, wife, lover, friendship, community, neighborhood, school, workplace? What's in the chaos of culture? What's in your heart and what's in my heart? Haman's in there. 
a Haman. We have this need to be more, to feel alive. We have this obsession to take God's place as God to feel alive, to be as God's is all of us. Pride is in there. That's what pride means. Haman is the longest treatment in the Bible on pride. Haman is the longest case study in pride in all the scripture. There's so much ink, so much space, so much time devoted to Haman. Almost more than any other character in the Bible but Jesus. Adam doesn't get this coverage. Eve doesn't get this coverage. David gets this coverage. Peter doesn't get this coverage. John doesn't get this coverage. Paul doesn't get this coverage other than that he wrote most of the Bible. But it's not like his life was covered like this. You know, the story of pride is like this. I want you to think of this. The story of pride is pride is in uh, a dark room. And all its life, from morning till dusk, it's just in this dark room. And pride um, is pacing back and forth in this dark room trying to find light. And you ask, well, how does pride try to find light? I'm so glad you asked. Pride tries to find light by saying this one sentence over and over again to itself and thinking that the, every time it says it, it's pushing some light bulb that's finally going to come on or some flashlight that's finally going to come on and it's going to have light. I must make something of myself. I must make something of myself. I must make something of myself. That's pride. So, why does Esther spend so much time, so much ink on pride, on Haman? Here's the answer, y'all. It's so incredible. It's so important. Because pride is always the last to know it's prideful. Pride is the last to see itself. If you watch what's happening in this story, it's phenomenal. Every character is like, it's that awkward conversation, right, with Haman. It's like, dude, do you hear yourself? Everybody sees it. Esther sees it. Xerxes sees it. All the, sta the staff can't stand him. It's clear in the text. The staff hate him. And then he starts talking to his wife and his friends, and you know, it was just that, oh, my word, dude, that's so awkward. It's so awkward that you're talking like this about yourself. He's the last one to see it. We're reading it. Everyone, for how many years this is read, because this is an Old Testament text, so it's longer than 2,000. Everybody else that reads it goes, dude, it's just a cringy moment. Everybody sees it but him. Haman is the last to know. Even up to the last possible moment. Do you see this? When they're at the, they're at the party, they're at the feast, right? Everybody's chilling. Well, all three of them, they're at a Persian palace. They've got... 
They got the breeze blowing through, and they literally chill. They literally chill. They, they lounge when they party. They lay on lounges and on pillows, and they eat laying down, and they drink laying down. They don't eat like us. They lounge. They relax, right? So they're all chilling. They're feasting. They're not just eating. They're feasting. Think Thanksgiving, how you feel, and then you, you roll. I know what I mean. I'm like, oh, get the wheelbarrow, and I jump in the wheelbarrow, and I make my sons push me over to the living room, and I... And I watch the Cowboys, right? This is, this is the way it's happening right now for them. They're drinking adult beverages. They're not just sipping iced tea. They are chilling, right? And finally, the king asks for the last time. It's the third time if you're counting. Honey. Okay, honey. Honey. What's going on? Right? Why did you break the law that could have been punishable by death to come see me without being summoned? Please, it's time. I love your parties, but I need to know. And Haman's over there just relaxing. He's probably smoking. He's probably, you know, whatever he's doing, he's feeling good about himself. He's feeling, he feels good. He's with all these folks, and he probably thinks to himself, because remember, we know that he does do that. Remember, Haman thinks to himself all the time, the text says, but every time he thinks to himself, it's his perception of reality, and he's always wrong. Because when your lens is yourself, you always misinterpret. You misinterpret conversations. They're talking about me. You have anxieties that aren't there. You have fears that aren't there. And you have delusions of grandeur that aren't there. So he's thinking to himself, and he's, this, is what he's, this is what I think he's doing. Finally, she's going to ask her stupid question. She's going to finally answer it. And I know what she's going to say. She's going to say, can I have one more week of vacation in Florida to work on my tan? You know, it's going to be something like that. That's the way he's thinking. You know he's thinking that. She's going to ask for some stupid trinket. Oh, she wants, the, she wants some area of the palace renovated. You, you know he's thinking this stuff. Don't act like you don't know that. And this is what Haman hears. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be, gla- let my life be granted for me for my wish, and my people for my request. Uh-oh. For we have been sold, I and my people. This is a literal quote from the decree that Haman had drawn up that went out to everybody in the kingdom. Quote, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. End quote. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not have, I would have remained silent, for our affliction is nothing compared to the loss to the king. And then King Xerxes is no longer reclining, and he bolts up, and he says, who is he? Who is he? Where is he? Who dares to do this? A foe and an enemy, King, the wicked Haman. Haman is the last to know. Pride is the last to know, always. Esther 7 doesn't want you to be the last to know. It doesn't want me to be the last to know. It doesn't want our culture to be the last to know. It doesn't want your relationship to be the last to know. It doesn't want any human being to be the last to know. Haman actually, or Esther 7 actually wants us to admit it. Admit it. Admit our pride. 
admit our obsession to be more, our addictions to take God's place as God to feel alive. I must make something of myself. I must make something of myself. Admit that we're all trying to be little creators, trying to create out of nothing something called me and you and meaning and life and significance. So all we have to do is admit it. Admit our pride in our relationships that we use people to make something of ourselves. And then we condemn people to make something of ourselves. Is that not going on all, everywhere today? And then we're filled with wrath towards people who block us from making something of ourselves. Imagine what would happen in our culture right now. What would happen in the church? What would happen in the culture? What would happen in politics? What would happen everywhere if everyone said this? I'm trying to make something of myself. And that's hurting me. It's hurting you. It's hurting the culture. What if we just admitted it? There's also something else here that's helpful to admit about pride. In other words, what this text wants us to do, and, and I said this in the first service, I think if I can remember it, because I get off on these tangents sometimes and I can't remember them. But it's like this, we, we don't want to face pride, we don't want to face the bad things about us, right? But here's what's so incredible about the Bible. The Bible says, the more you are able to admit and see what's true, the Haman in you, the more distance you have from it which means the more happy you are, the more free you are, the most secure you are, the more you become yourself, the more you become a loving person. But the less you see of it, the less happy you are. The less you are yourself. The less peace is in your life. Because as Sartre said, not the Bible, but the Bible says it too, it is an unbearable burden to make something of yourself. Here's the other thing we need to see, y'all. And maybe this is helpful to you. It's helpful to me. I mean, when I, I saw that, I'm like, oh, this is so helpful. Okay, uh, see the Haman in there means I'm going to admit it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be the last to know. I'm going to admit it, right? The other thing is this. Notice that pride always dies. Haman dies in the end. Pride never lives in the end. Pride has no future. Do you see this? If the Apostle Peter was here, he'd interpret... If Apostle Peter, in fact, maybe he did. When he, was, when he was writing down what he wrote down in his epistle, and he probably was thinking of Haman, and this is what he said. God opposes the proud. It's impossible to take God's place. Trying to take God's place is the very definition of death. The Apostle P, uh, Paul, if he was here, that's Peter. The Apostle Paul was here because I don't remember if I said Peter or Paul. I think that's a long-standing joke for a lot of people. Who is it, Peter or Paul? If the Apostle Paul was here and he interprets Haman's death, he'd say, pride cannot save us. Pride has no future. Pride is not the Savior. See the Haman in you. 
It'll put distance between you and pride. And whatever that distance is, each increment of distance is more freedom, more happiness, more you become yourself. Let's see something else. You know that Israel, I mean that Esther is saving Israel, right? You know that she's doing that. I mean, God's saving Israel, but he has a mediator. He uses a a redemptive agent. So he's using Esther to save Israel. And not just save Israel, but literally saving you and me. Because if Israel gets wiped out, there's no Savior that comes, right? That's why everything is hanging on this. But she saves Israel from Haman. She saves Israel from death and destruction, annihilation. And when she, this mediator, this redemptive agent, this Savior, she's talking to the king, right, about the Haman that's right there. And she says, what does she say? She says, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then years later, though, there's going to be another Savior because there's another Savior that actually saves not only Israel, but saves the whole world. And this Savior, like the ultimate Savior, in which the little redemptive Savior of Esther actually points to in all of human history and all theological history and all biblical history. And this other Savior is before another king speaking about Haman's. And he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Forgive the hate. How can God do that? How can God forgive people who continually try to take his place, who really are the foe and the enemy? Because that's what that is, is it not? Dethrone God? (laughs) Well, you're not a friend if you do that. You're an assassin, like the one that tried to take Xerxes out. How can God forgive people who continually try to take his place? Answer, because he sent a savior to take yours and mine. That's unbelievable. The essence of sin is trying to take God's place. The essence of the savior is taking yours and mine. It's breathtaking. It's so powerful. Our pride dies with Jesus. He gets hung. So we don't have to. So here's the deal. To see something else now is seeing that your pride and my pride dies on the cross with Jesus. So you really can admit it. You're free now to admit it because he took your pride and killed it. It's not held against you anymore. So you're free to admit it. You're free to be free from it. But not only that, Jesus gives you. This is so important. What's pride trying to do? Pride is trying to feel alive. Pride is trying to find a self. Pride is trying to justify his existence. Pride is trying to be more with Jesus. You get everything pride could never give you. 
Jesus actually gives you the recognition, his recognition. He gives you importance, his importance, all the recognition you can need, all the honor you can need, all the greatness you can need, all the justification of your being, your worth and value that you need. He actually gives it to you. It's his because he's your savior. Or if he's not, trust him to become your savior. And then this is so important, we're going to end here. Everybody says to me, over the years, I've been preaching this kind of gospel for a long time, and people will say to me, but Jeff, you know, I get that, that's great, but how does that change your life? And I go, how does it change your life? (laughs) How does this not change your life? Because there's only two existences. You either take people, take culture, take all aspects of creation and use them and condemn them to make something of yourself in the project of trying to justify yourself. Or if Jesus actually gives it to you and is your justification, you don't need to do that anymore. You're now free. This is the difference it makes. You are now free to take people, culture, and all aspects of creation like, you know, working out or reading a good book or good music, whatever it is for you, and enjoy it and love it and serve others with it. You are now free to love people, not use them and condemn them. You are free to now love culture, not use it and condemn it. You are now free to use love and enjoy and serve all aspects of creation, not use it and condemn it. I'd say that's a pretty well-changed life. Amen.